If you will, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, chapter 2. Jonah, chapter 2. <clears throat> this morning, we are going to be making some serious headway. We're actually going to cover the entire chapter, verses 1 through 10. So Jonah, chapter 2. As you're turning there, I wonder if you've ever thought of music and for what it is. Music, at its core, is a language. It's a language that communicates to us on a deeper level than words alone. We've, we've sung this morning these powerful words, but they're accompanied with, a, with I think, the, with that music is important because it connects to us. Something that's intuitive. The other night, <clears throat> we were playing a, a game with the brooms and with the urbans over at our house which actually the game, it was kind of a board game, but it, it had music that went along with it. And so Brian hit the play button, and Titus, Titus was downstairs with us, and the music came on when he was, you know, all over the place being Titus. But when it came on, he stopped what he was doing immediately, and he sat up and he started just basically shouting, what's that mean? <laughs> what, what's that story? What, what are you talking about? That's, that's basically what was said. It was, it was intriguing to me because he intuitively picked up, he was not paying any attention up to that point, and yet he intuitively picked up on something's going on, something he didn't understand, the detail of all that was going of happening, but it just fascinated me because he got it all from the music. He hadn't been paying any attention to anything else we were doing up until that moment, but when, when the music came on, he locked on. He had to know what was happening. This morning... I want to play a song for you, or really, I want to read it. It's the song of the saved. The song which Jonah sang to the Lord while he was in the belly of the fish, which should feel peculiarly familiar to you as we read it, since it's a song that runs throughout all of Scripture, with words and themes that show up in other places, like in the song that Moses sang in Exodus 15 on the banks of the Red Sea after God rescued Israel from the armies of Pharaoh, in which we find sung also by the hosts of heaven in Revelation 5, verses 9 through 10, to Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. This is the song of the saved, a song which flows like water from the fountain that flows in the hearts of those who have experienced firsthand the power of God's salvation. This song is meant to communicate a certain message to us, which lies at the very heart of the book of Jonah. <clears throat> so as we read it together, I want you to look for it, to look through the lens of everything that we've learned so far from the book of Jonah. My prayer is that as we do that, God will tune our own hearts to play this same song, so that we will live lives of thankfulness and joy in the salvation that comes from God in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. So let's begin by reading Jonah chapter 2. If you will, please stand with me out of respect for God's Word as I read this passage. This is the Word of the Lord. <clears throat> then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. 
For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, the aim of the book of Jonah, as we've said, is to bring us face to face with the reality of who God is. In particular, it aims to show us God's amazing compassion as he shows grace and steadfast love even to the undeserving. We see that theme vividly displayed to us here in chapter 2. If the book of Jonah were a mountain, this would be its tallest peak, its climax. If it ended here, we'd get the message, I think, that we're supposed to get, though I'm very glad it doesn't end here because we have so much more to learn about what you might call Act 2 of the book of Jonah as he finally fulfills the mission which God had set him on in the first place, which is to call out against Nineveh. The main idea of our passage, which frankly I think summarizes the key lesson of the book of Jonah, is what we hear Jonah say here in the second part of verse 9, that salvation belongs to the Lord. So that, if you don't get anything else out of this message, get this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, this is called Jonah's prayer, and so it is because we are told he prayed these words in the belly of the fish. But it's also a song. It's a psalm. And it's a song that aims to teach us three important lessons related to our main idea that salvation belongs to the Lord. <clears throat> so those will be our three points. First, we see that God does not abandon his promises or his people. God does not abandon his people or his promises. Second, God hears the cries of the perishing. God hears the cries of the perishing. Third, we see that God is sovereign in our salvation. God is sovereign in our salvation. Well, the first lesson which Jonah aims to teach us about God and his salvation simply is that God does not abandon his promises and he does not abandon his people. Have you ever ha had someone let you down before? Have you ever had someone maybe make a promise to you and then fail to follow through with it? I have. Now, back in college, there was a certain position on the student council that I wanted to fill. And I was a commuter, <clears throat> so I I. I knew if I wasn't intentional about getting involved, I wasn't going to get involved at all. And I wanted to be part of student life on campus, so I figured this would be a really good way to get plugged in. Now, leading up to these elections, I had talked with one of my new friends about it, and we had arranged for him to nominate me to it 
in front of the rest of the student body. So as uh, everyone came together for the assembly, I was pretty excited. I was nervous. Everyone was new, um, <clears throat> and none of us, so none of us really knew each other. And this just seemed like a really great opportunity to start fresh and have a good trajectory in my college career. I figured my chances of getting voted in were just as good as anyone. So I was in fairly good spirits. That is, until the nomination started and things took an unexpected turn. You see, it turned out that the friend that I had arranged to nominate me apparently wanted the position too. And I didn't know that. So I was completely caught off guard as I heard my friend being nominated to the position himself. And then shock turned into a bit of frustration because it became very clear he had no intention of following through on what we had talked about. So that, that hurt. We, we had an agreement, or at least I thought we did. Maybe he didn't think that. I have to, I don't know. He, but he broke it, regardless. And to this day, I don't, I don't know if he forgot what we had talked about or if he had decided that, you know, I would like that position. I'm just not going to follow through. I don't know what was in his mind. Either way, I didn't get the position, and I came away feeling pretty bitter about it, like I'd been robbed even of a chance to try. My trust had been violated, and I felt like I'd been forgotten. So it took some time for me to forgive him, and it, and it took a little bit longer before I felt like I could actually trust him again. Trust is a precious thing. It takes time to build, but it can be broken in an instant. And once that's happened, it's really hard to put those pieces back together. Some of us find it hard to trust other people at all because time after time we've been let down. There's a reason we all crave control, and there's a reason it's hard for us to trust. But the gospel requires that we trust. It empties us of any hope we have in ourselves and requires us to trust wholesale in God. Not just to believe that He is, not just to believe that He exists, but also to fully entrust ourselves to Him. The gospel demands that we cease from all other efforts of trying to earn a title of righteousness for ourselves and it requires us to come to the foot of the cross of Christ. Salvation belongs to God. It's not a prize we can win for ourselves. And therefore, our hope for salvation is wholly and completely dependent on His faithfulness. This is the first lesson which Jonah 2 aims to teach us about God and about ourselves. After Jonah had been swallowed by this enormous fish, we're told in verse 1, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Now, I know this seems like a simple introduction. But there's something going on here which is absolutely staggering. I was telling Brad, I think I could preach one sermon just from this verse. So, let's just break it down here. First, we're told that while Jonah was in the belly of the fish, he prayed. The timing of this prayer is incredibly important. This is actually the first time that we've seen or heard Jonah pray at all since we first started this book, which is a horribly depressing thing to think about. And yet it proves something to us, I think, about the extent of God's mercy and grace. Second, we see that Jonah prayed to the Lord. This is God's covenant name given to Israel. This is the name which God called himself by to Moses on the mountain when he sent him to collect his people out of their slavery in Egypt. The use of the Lord's name here 
is meant to be noticeably specific. And as such, it actually connects Jonah into a bigger storyline, the, the, the story of God's work of redemption. And so that brings us to the third thing you should notice here in this introduction. These two absolutely vital words. Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. There's, some, there's, there's, there's really very little said in the book of Jonah up until now, which paints Jonah as a servant of the Lord, besides what he says himself. Though Jonah told the sailors on the ship that he feared or that he served the Lord, you wouldn't know it from his work, would you? Jonah rejected God's command. He fled from God's presence. He insulted God by fleeing to the sea which God made. He put a bunch of other people's lives in peril through his own rebellion and then showed very little regard for their lives through his actions when he was on board the ship until he was found out. By refusing to go to Nineveh, Jonah had not only just disobeyed God, he had placed himself as an obstacle in the path of God's mercy. But that's just what makes this statement, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, so utterly profound. You see, while Jonah stands out in this book as just a glaring example of disobedience, and while his faithfulness fell short, while he failed, God did not. God kept Jonah. When Jonah went AWOL, God pursued him, confronted him, disciplined him, saved him, and returned him. God loved Jonah too much to abandon him to his sin. He brought Jonah within an inch of his life to break him of his disobedience, and then he showed Jonah this undeserved mercy by rescuing him and returning him to the path of obedience. That's the whole reason why Jonah is able to pray to the Lord as his God. He's able to do that because God did not abandon him. If you, if you build your faith on other people, you are going to be disappointed. People are sinners. As much as I can say that I have been let down by other people, I also have to admit I have let other people down as well. People will disappoint you. So be careful not to base your faith in Christ on me, the deacons, some pastor or teacher that you like to listen to online, your parents, your spouse, or anyone else. The truthfulness of the gospel and its effectiveness doesn't stand on the faithfulness of any mere man or woman. It stands on, the found, on one foundation, which is the faithfulness of God demonstrated first and foremost in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He doesn't fail. And because of that, we see that Jonah's prayer was heard. And what a relief that is. That is why God originally called Jonah to go to Nineveh. That is why God emptied Jonah the way he did with this storm. That is why God preserved Jonah's life and why he heard Jonah's prayer. All of it is because of his faithfulness. This, this whole passage, this whole book is built on one foundation. This is, this is the first chorus of Jonah's song, which is intended to give each and every one of us hope. Because while it removes all confidence we might take in ourselves, it beckons us to plant the anchor of our hope in the rock 
of God's faithfulness, which can never be moved. God is not a man. He does not disappoint. He is faithful. He always keeps His promises. He is holy and He is perfect. There is not shadow or variation in Him due to change. He doesn't change His mind about things. And so we can rest in Him. Since as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 13, even when we are faithless, He remains faithful for He cannot deny Himself. Nowhere do we see that more vividly displayed to us than in the life of Jonah. The wording of verse 1 is not an accident. It's not incidental. It's not a chapter title. It is glorious. And it's meant to assure us of the steadfast love of the Lord, which He so richly pours out on the undeserving. Our faithlessness does not nullify the faithfulness of God. Instead, God has exalted himself over it. He has conquered it. He has loved us even while we are yet sinners by sending Christ to us and establishing the promise of the covenant of his grace with his own precious blood. That's the first lesson of Jonah's song, which is echoed in everything that Jonah has to say in it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is faithful. And so Jonah, in turn, is beckoning us to entrust ourselves to the Lord with what he says about God in his prayer, in his his song. And that brings us to the second lesson that this chapter aims to teach us about God and his salvation. It aims to teach us that God is faithful. It also aims to teach us that God hears the cries of the perishing. In verse 2, Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. When Jonah was hurled overboard from the ship, it was as if he was being cast into the very mouth of death. The sea may have calmed down for these sailors, but Jonah remained in a serious situation. In verse 3, Jonah recounts the Lord's justice. He says that the Lord cast him into the deep, into the heart of of the seas. Now you may remember the sailors had actually tried to get Jonah back to dry land, right? The storm and the sea had prevented them from doing that. There was only one way out of this situation. Justice had to be served. So as Jonah says that you cast me into the sea, he's not blaming God or accusing God. Rather, he's recognizing that this was the disciplining hand of God, that God was right to do this. He was getting what he deserved for his disobedience. In verses 4 through 6, Jonah describes this experience of death. He says, Then I was driven away from your sight. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Uh, there There are two things really to notice here. First, Jonah paints a very vivid picture of the way his life was slipping away from him as he plunged beneath the waves. He describes himself as being in the very realm of death on his way to becoming a permanent resident in it. The sea was sucking him down, wrapping him up like a coffin. He talks about Sheol, which is what the Hebrews refer to as really as the, as the realm of the dead. So as his, Jonah is using that language here. He's talking about the curse of death which comes as a result of sin. 
And related to that, the second thing to notice here is the way that Jonah speaks about his separation from God. Now, this is a particularly interesting thing for Jonah to describe since we've already been told that what was Jonah trying to do when he got on the ship? He was fleeing the presence of the Lord by going to Tarshish, right? So as Jonah has felt his, his physical life slipping away, he was also apparently quite aware of the separation that sin had caused between him and God. In verse 4 he says, <clears throat> Then I said, I, was, I am driven away from your sight. As we're reading Jonah describe his experience below the waves, it's like Genesis 3 all over again, with Jonah being driven away from the presence of God, even as Adam and Eve were being expelled from paradise under the curse of their sin. When Jonah talks about being in distress, about being the very belly of Sheol, he's not mincing words or trying to be tragically poetic here. He's expressing the reality of what sin does. Sin makes us deserving of God's wrath. This is sin's curse. We rightfully deserve death. We cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. His perfect holiness would consume us. So it's a big, big thing for Jonah to say, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the very belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Do you see how deep this chasm is? God heard Jonah from the bottom of the sea. Though Jonah was driven away from his sight, God did not remain angry with him. He heard Jonah's cry, and he rescued him. Jonah's prayer, his song, shows remarkably bold faith. Jonah knew that God was merciful and gracious, that he is slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness. He knew that God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but rejoices in showing his great love and mercy to them. Jonah's prayer here does not presume on God's grace, but it does trust him for it. Jonah had been emptied of himself. He had given himself over to God, received this discipline, but he had also entrusted himself to the faithfulness of God who keeps his promises and restores the repentant. Let's look at the change that's going on here in verse 4. Whereas when we started the book, Jonah was trying to flee God's presence, now we hear him grieving over how he had been driven from God's sight. But because of the grace of God and the faithfulness of God, Jonah is able to pray even from the belly of this fish, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. In his distress, Jonah prayed to the Lord and the Lord heard his cry. He did not abandon Jonah to the deep. He rescued him. So even as Jonah's life was slipping away, he says, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. When my life was fading away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah teaches us that the ear of the Lord is attentive to those who are perishing. He redeems and he rescues, even while he upholds his perfect justice and holiness. This is the second chorus of the Song of the Saved. And it holds an important lesson for us, which helps us to better comprehend the depth of God's compassion that is deeper than the ocean. God heard Jonah's cry for help. Even though Jonah was in the very gates of Sheol, like when you're looking at Jonah's situation, you're seeing a man who's beyond saving, at least from our standpoint. 
He's in the depths of the sea, but he's not beyond the Lord's ear. God heard his cry for help, and he delivered him. In his own words, Jonah says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. God rescued Jonah out of the depths of the sea. He pulled his life out of the pit. He restored Jonah not only to life, but to land. As we read in verse 10, the Lord speaks to the fish, and then it vomits him out on dry land. We'll we'll probably look a little bit more at that next week, but we can see the things come full circles in, in in the way that God fully brings Jonah out of the chaos of the sea. In doing this, God demonstrated his grace and his mercy towards Jonah. But he also showed him that his hand is never too short to save those who are perishing. There's, in the song of the saved, there's, there's a minor key, a mournful tone that runs through it, which is there because sin is the reason we need saving. But as in the song of Jonah, those mournful chords give way to major triumphs in the grace which God gives to those who call upon him for salvation. Satan will happily try to keep people from Christ by convincing them of one of either two things. Either he tries to convince us that we, are, that we don't need to be saved, as in the case of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who thought that their righteousness was enough, when in reality they were far from God. Or Satan will try to convince us that we are beyond saving, that God wants nothing to do with us, and that our sin is too great. Jonah's song busts both of these lies open by showing us the true state of our souls apart from Christ and by showing us that God's ear is not deaf to our cries and his hand is not too short to pluck us up out of the depths of our sin. He does not make empty promises. He is able to save even the worst of sinners. That brings us to our third point this morning, which is to see that God is sovereign in salvation. Really the highlight of Jonah's prayer, the trumpet blast that concludes his song, is that salvation belongs to the Lord. As we read what Jonah prayed, we see uh, that it ends with hope-filled worship. If you, if you read Jonah's prayer, uh, I think, just read it through, I think it's easy to forget about the timing of all of this. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And verse 1 tells us that he prayed these words to the Lord while he was in there. Now, I don't think we should, should, I don't think Jonah was sitting there in the darkness of the fish, uh, writing all these words down on a piece of scrap paper that happened to be floating next to him. But the text is clear that this is what he prayed while he was there. That's particularly interesting and important because of the way that Jonah prays here. Notice that when he speaks of his deliverance, it's in the past tense, as if it's already taken place. It's been intentionally written this way, and I think that's important because it shows us that Jonah understood, even as he was in the belly of the fish, that God heard and had delivered him. He's not in the belly of the fish despairing of his life. He's praying in faith that we, he will in fact look upon the temple again. That he will have opportunity to offer the sacrifice he has promised and to fulfill his vows which he had made. Even from the belly of the fish, Jonah is praising God for his salvation. You, you, don't, you just don't say things like this unless you're convinced that you're going to live. 
And so in order to explain what Jonah is, how he is actually able to speak in this way, I think we have to credit it to the way he believed God and the way he had believed God's promise that he would, in fact, hear the cries of his people and he would answer them. The, the timing of Jonah's prayer actually really changes, uh, I think, the way that we are tempted to consider the fish who swallowed Jonah. Typically, I think when we think of a fish swallowing per, a person, we would see that as judgment, right? The belly of a fish is not a comfortable place to be, but it was there, and it had Jonah because the Lord had appointed it to do so. God used this fish to preserve Jonah, to rescue him from the perils of the sea. It shows that God was in control. And so uh, a situation which we see from our perspective really looks totally hopeless, then turns into an opportunity for God's power and grace to shine, much like the tomb which held Jesus, as it was transformed from a place of death to a place of victory and life. If we think back to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, we actually hear him quoting David speaking prophetically about Jesus. And this is what he said. This is what David says. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. That is the same theme of Jonah's praise here in verse 9. Though Jesus remained in the grave for three days, God did not abandon him. Jonah got a, a small taste of the full cup which Jesus drank from, not, not only coming to, into the gates of death, by inter, but by entering it for us and then rising from it on the third day. The father did not abandon his son to death, but gave him authority to take his life up again, an authority which he exercises in glory, making known the paths of life to all who believe in him. So it stands that Jonah's deliverance from the sea actually looks forward to the greater deliverance that we have in Jesus Christ. Jonah's song is intended to teach us to hope in our God who sovereignly saves. It also teaches us to wait on the completion of this hope. It's, it's really something to me about how Jonah speaks of his salvation from the sea as if it is already complete, even though that at this point he's not completely free of it. In a similar way, we live in a world, believers live in a world where Christ has defeated sin and death for them on the cross, and yet we are still waiting and longing for the fullness of that promise and of our deliverance to be made complete. Jonah models the way we are to wait on the Lord with patience and confidence. Among its many purposes, Jonah's song it really is intended to equip us to wait patiently on the Lord as he fulfills his promises with impeccable faithfulness. And Jonah's prayer also teaches us about the exclusive power of God to save. When we say that God is sovereign, that salvation belongs to the Lord, we are saying that He and He alone is able to accomplish this. Jonah sings in verse 8, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now, maybe he was thinking about those sailors who were on the ship who had moments earlier been praying to other gods who were incapable of saving them. But he's also borrowing some language here from David in Psalm 31, verses 6 and 8, where David writes, <clears throat> I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, 
but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction and you have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy, but you have set my feet in a broad place. No other Savior is worthy of our trust the way God is worthy of our trust because only the Lord, Jonah tells us, is capable of saving us from sin and death. Salvation belongs to Him and to Him alone. His power excludes hope in anyone or in anything else but Him. Finally, Jonah's song ends by calling us to give God his due. Earlier, Brad read from Psalm 50, where we were ta- told not just to bring sacrifices to God, but to bring sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise. While others cry out to other gods who cannot save them, empty idols who cannot deliver, Jonah declares, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This final line in Jonah's song is the high point of this entire book. If you zoom out of the individual things that are being told to us and look at the whole construction of the book, you're going to actually find that it has been laid out masterfully with a purpose of bringing us to this key conclusion that salvation belongs to the Lord. The good news about this message is that we see that while God is holy and just, He is also compassionate and gracious. He does not clear the guilty as if He were sweeping sin under some cosmic rug, but He does forgive it. And so Jonah ends up pointing us to Jesus who took our sin on Himself and paid the penalty for us so that we can then be be declared righteous in the sight of God through faith in Him. Jonah ushers us not not into a temple made with human hands, but into a heavenly holy of holies, the very throne room of grace, where we are received with him, with Christ, as sons and daughters of God. In Jonah's song, the song of the saved, we see that death itself is not a match for God. We see that God has a vigilant ear and that he delivers that exalts God for the way he is able to deliver even sinners such as we are. And it finishes us by raising our eyes from earthly saviors to glory in God who is our Redeemer. Salvation belongs to him. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we have gotten to witness the song of the saved, the song of the redeemed. And Father... As we've said, as we've been studying the book of Jonah, there, there are many things to critique about Jonah, and yet there are many similarities we can draw between our own lives and his. And Father, we want to come before you this morning with a deep awareness that we do not deserve your love, that we do not deserve your grace or your mercy. It wouldn't be grace if we deserved it. And yet you have poured out righteousness on us in Christ. So this morning, Father, as we have learned this important message that salvation belongs to you, as we have explored that together, I pray, Father, that you would give us hearts of faith to trust you in that salvation and that accordingly you would be exalted 
For you are the one who delivers from death, and you are the one who saves from sin, and you are the one who is worthy of our affection and our praise. And we pray this all in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you will stand for our song of response.